One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, I'm Anoush. And I'm Patrick. And on this week's New Statesman podcast, we discuss Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister and his new cabinet appointments. You ask us, could he call a second referendum? And I speak to our digital culture writer, Sarah Manavis, about a new exciting project. So I'm joined by Patrick, fresh and only a little sweaty from Westminster, where you Boris Johnson <laughs> is about to become Prime Minister. So why don't you tell us a bit about the atmosphere there, first of all? It's between febrile and... No, no, no I'd say it's a solid 10 on the febrile scale at the minute. It's been very strange the past two days since Boris Johnson won that crushing victory over Jeremy Hunt because... For the first time in a very long time, the Conservative Party has seemed like a coherent entity. Yesterday at the 1922 committee, obviously, we, we journalists took up residence in the corridor outside and usually we're used to hearing, as Theresa May's premiership sort of crawled towards its inevitable demise, the sort of, you know, MPs and whips bang the doors to, to, to signal that they're having a great time and that they love their dear leader. And as Theresa May's premiership sort of petered out, the sort of depth of the wall banging and the table banging <laughs> like, got so thin that you could just tell it was sort of one lonely junior government whip enthusiastically sort of thwacking the door. <laughs> but yesterday it was like being sort of outside a football match. Everyone was sort of had their dander up. You know, everybody from Steve Baker to Tom Tugendhat was coming out and saying, you know, we're having a great time. We're all getting behind Boris Johnson. Obviously, you sort of have to say that after the election of a new leader and that's the vibe Johnson will be going for. Similarly at PMQs today as well, you know, in recent weeks in PMQs there's been fewer than a hundred Tory MPs turning up. Downing Street have been sending these begging letters every week. <laughs> and I've put I must have I must have blogged about four of them and each week the tone gets more and more desperate. And they were especially begged to turn up to a final PMQs, and they did in, in huge numbers and it was all it was all very collegiate and, and very nice. One of the surprising things given how divisive the leadership race was, is the Tory party rediscovering its capacity for unity. As with any prime minister, it's really tempting to draw long-term conclusions from that. But one thing that struck me about sitting outside the 22 committee last night was that an MP by the name of Keith Simpson, who literally, I would be very surprised if many lobby journalists had, not impugning my good colleagues in the lobby, but you know, it's not someone we tend to pay attention to, but he rebelled for the first time to block prorogation of Parliament last week to stop No Deal. And he said, oh, I've got a taste for rebellion. And he came out early and told the sort of huddle of waiting journalists, you know, my colleagues are all pretending not to act like ambitious little shits. Um, <laughs> you know, it's all nonsense. 
And that really reminded me really vividly of sort of this time last year, sitting outside 22 committee meetings with Theresa May as she staggered from Brexit crisis to Brexit crisis. And Tory MPs had come out and, you know, the members of the government payroll or Theresa May loyalists. And you say, how was that? How was that? You know, how, what, what did they say? Who, who got up and shouted at her? And I always say, it was fine. You know, we're all on board with her. It was only Philip Davies, Nadine Doris, a another, <laughs> a another nutter who got up and said something. And I thought it's an exact parallel because as much as the, you know, the Tory party, the majority of Tory MPs are behind Johnson now, all it takes in a minority parliament is one or two people you've never heard of to lose it as clearly enough MPs already have and the wheels wheels will come off. Yeah, that's really interesting. And also that atmosphere of optimism. I remember that from even when Theresa May yeah. became leader and that ability of the Tory party to look unified and look optimistic, I think happened then as well as now. And it's so short-lived, isn't it? Like, I just remember that first PMQs where she was quite hammy and... It was a bit like a pantomime, but she went, does it remind you of anyone to Jeremy Corbyn? And everyone was like, this is brilliant. And she did that speech outside Downing Street, which really scared some Labour politicians when she was talking about the sort of social issues in the country. And it's just so short lived. It it fizzles out immediately when it's obvious that they can't hold any kind of actual unity in Parliament. Yeah, it's very much this. It's very much a sort of unity that will combust as soon as it comes into contact with an actual event. And funnily enough, it's actually already started to combust in a sort of slightly low key under the radar way it's the sort of a reverse keith simpson if you will (laughs) um dominic cummings who listeners will know fear hate maybe that you know when i say that name they'll see benedict cumberbatch's weird face and bad geordie accent um (laughs) as the sort of head honcho vote leave former spad for michael gove who was absolutely loathed on whitehall criticized as loopy by nick clegg and very divisive but sort of mercurial figure who's sort of lionised by a certain kind of Tory as a strategic genius has been appointed as a senior advisor to Boris Johnson. Now, much of the attention is focused on, you know, will he demote Jeremy Hunt? Is Pretty Patel going to be our Home Secretary and bring back hanging? You know, <laughs> will serial puppy kicker in the face be appointed minister for not kicking puppies in the face? <laughs> that, those sort of Tory reshuffle questions. But in terms of Boris Johnson's ability to keep the party together, to deliver a Brexit solution that keeps the Tory sort of coalition intact, you know, that his whole pitch is... I can do that by hook or by crook, by taking us out by no deal, or I have the force of will and personality to A, extract a concession from Brussels, and B, keep the Matt Hancocks and the Steve Bakers and everybody else together and deliver us a majority and we'll all be hunky-dory. Dominic Cummings, for a certain kind of Tory or a sceptic, you know, he clashed with the likes of John Redwood, Ian Duncan Smith, mm. Bernard Jenkin, the grand old men of Tory Euroscepticism during the uh, Vote Leave campaign, and he's on the record just being sort of really like violently rude about them you know he called them clowns he said they were you know a disgrace to the referendum campaign you know, his his job he thought was to keep them as far away from the limelight as possible now those sorts of tories think his appointment is the great betrayal now you know eurosceptics much like the dup love any sniff of betrayal they love the feeling of being sold out and the righteous anger that flows from that so they think dominic cummings being appointed because he's so close with michael gove and because boris johnson already has the the black mark which people forget People forget, and you know, in his own personal mythology, he sort of misses out the bit where he voted for Theresa May's Brexit deal yeah. at the third time of asking. Now, they think that is an early sign that Johnson's rhetoric on no deal is rhetoric on, hell no, I'm not going to take a concession on the backstop. It's, you know, GAT24 or a Canada plus, 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 minus or, or nothing. They think the appointment of Cummings is a sign that he's about to rat on them. So already the distrust has set in. And then 
this sort of ties into the reshuffle as well because there are so many moving parts to Johnson's coalition. One of them are the so-called Spartans, the 28 Tory MPs who, unlike him, voted against the Brexit deal three times. And their pitch is, look, we are your majority. We have the grassroots with us. You've got to give us cabinet jobs. Now, if he's appointed Dominic Cummings and then the likes of Steve Baker and others don't get the cabinet jobs they feel they have earned, mm. then that gets his campaign, his campaign which was sort of blemishless in terms of his appeal to those sorts of people. Actually, you know, the bonds of trust that he's forged over the past month immediately start to fray. And then you've got, on the other side, the anti-no-dealers. So really, despite all the whooping and cheering and the order papers flying around, it's not a great or particularly rosy outlook. Yeah, and it might not be a great or particularly rosy outlook, not just in terms of him keeping his party together, but electorally as well, because Dominic Cummings and that kind of contingent are no friend of the Brexit party sort mm. of Eurosceptic con- contingent, are they? I mean, yeah, Nigel exactly. Farage won't look kindly on that kind of appointment. Yeah, no, 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 exactly, exactly. It's interesting as well, because if you conclude, as most Tories have, despite the fact Johnson told them yesterday, you know, I'm not going to call a snap election before before 2022, which reminds me of when Theresa May, after the vote of no confidence in her leadership, got up and said, you know, I won't be calling a snap election. It's a bit like, well, you don't have a majority. You know, your central policy has been rejected time and time again. Like, it's like saying, like, you know, it's like saying it's not going to rain tomorrow, right? Like, ultimately, you are not the arbiter. I suppose the fixed-term parliament, that complicates it a bit, but like, you're not the arbiter of, uh, of whether or not that happens. So, if you accept, as I think privately everyone does, that there is an election in the offing, perhaps even a referendum, but we'll come on to that a little bit later, then who better to have on your team than the man who, rightly or wrongly, most people believe is responsible for the greatest upset in British electoral history? You know, there is some, you know, obviously the nerds out there might say, you know, what about Matthew Elliott, the other guy? That's true, but for most Tories, most Tories they read Dominic Cummings' blog posts and they think... What a what a genius! We've got to have him on board, you know. And also, the interesting subplots of this: he was meant to be the chief of staff in the so-called Dream Team administration that Boris Johnson and Michael Gove failed to put together in famous circumstances after the twenty after the referendum after David Cameron resigned. So maybe there's a bit of delayed onset wish fulfillment there. But yeah, I mean, it's an appointment which makes strategic sense in terms of, you know, campaigning, but also, as you say, opens up fights with two people, or rather two camps you desperately need, one to neutralise in the country and two to keep on side in Parliament. Yeah, and it's the hope in some seats. I've just come from reporting in Uxbridge earlier this week, which is Boris Johnson's constituency, where he his majority more than halved in the 2017 election to 5,000 votes. Labour's hopes there is that, you know, the, the vote can be split between the Conservatives and the Brexit Party and appointing a campaign, someone in charge of your campaigning who the Brexit Party don't take kindly to could mean that they're less likely to be the sort of friendly political force that perhaps Conservative members hoped that Boris Johnson would be able to harness, unlike Jeremy Hunt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously the big, the big gamble of all of this is that Boris Johnson won't have to be in a position where the Brexit party are a, a sort of live concern. You know, the, 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 the entire point of this exercise, as far as yeah. Tory MPs see it, is, OK, this question is really big and scary, so let's 
answer it before we give the Brexit party the chance the chance to answer in the country. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. with a parliamentary coalition as vociferous and prone to tearing itself apart as the Tory coalition, despite its sort of illusory, you know, unity over the past couple of days, there's no guarantee of that. And we won't talk too specifically about the cabinet appointments because we'll our listeners will know more than we do currently in our podcasting room today when this comes out. But when I heard the, the briefing, oh, you know, there'll be more women than ever, there'll be an emphasis on ethnic minorities, a true reflection of modern Britain. It really rang alarm bells because I remember the 2014 reshuffle that David Cameron did, which was supposed to be out with the male, pale and stale. And it turned out to be one of, well, some people think it was a big mistake, that reshuffle, because he got rid of people like Michael Gove and Ken Clark, both of whom came back to bite him later in, yeah, yeah, yeah. in different ways. And also, of course, some of those appointments, people like Baroness Farsi, ended up not being able to work with him in government and became a thorn in his side later as well. Is that kind of tactic something that will happen to Boris Johnson? Yeah, and, and similarly, last year, Theresa May's sort of supposed, you know, revitalising reshuffle, those are the exact lines she briefed as well, mm. which was, you know, I'm going to clear out the middle-aged men, there's going to be loads of young, exciting women cabinet ministers, and, you know, the the only person that could plausibly be said to be a young, exciting female cabinet minister and Justine Greening ended up being sacked, uh, <laughs> or is or resigning, or whichever whichever one you want to call it. So you always make yourself a hostage to fortune if you pre-brief something which one you might not live up to, and two which other appointments might overshadow. For instance. Obviously, you're picking this one Whitehall, as it uh, from Whitehall, and other political journalists have had a bit of this today. Who knows whether it'll come true? And there'll be plenty of listeners who hope not that Dominic Raab is going to be the Foreign Secretary, and that in itself is a ready-made retort from, I don't know, let's say the Lib Dem press office. It writes itself. You know, Joe Swinson said, for all the talk of promoting women, Boris Johnson's chief dip- diplomat is a man who called feminist obnoxious bigots, right? Yeah. Like so. The narrative you preordain for your reshuffle very quickly runs away with you. And also, it constrains Boris Johnson politically as well, because mm. there are so few senior women in the Conservative Party. Actually, beyond Pretty Patel and Andrea Leadsom, the only plausible candidates for either being retained in cabinet or being promoted in cabinet are people who didn't didn't support him. Especially if you, you know, if you want to go for safety first, obviously there are, you know, young, ambitious, you know, widely considered able Tory ministers like Lucy Fraser, very able justice minister who has a good reputation, but she's, she, you know, she's from a newer intake, and then you're, you're sort of left fishing in the Penny Morden Amber Rudd pool, which, okay, Penny Morden's a Brexiteer, and Amber Rudd has undergone, you know, another one of her Damascene conversions to <laughs> being pro No Deal now, but they're not natural allies. Yeah, And as much as Johnson is talking about the need to love bomb the side of the party that supports Jeremy Hunt, etc, etc, with a central policy so divisive, you need a, you know, you need a team that you can rely on. And it's not a foregone conclusion that in seeking to tick these boxes, he's got a slightly easier job on the minority side because all the plausible candidates there are from his own coalition. But could upset the, uh, the balance of a cabinet that could be very delicately structured indeed. Yes, yeah. And, and you, you're not only tying your hands in terms of Brexit, but also, you know, if you're choosing between, say, Sajid Javid and Liz Truss for Chancellor, those mm. two people have such different politics on, on the economy. Um, yeah, yeah, no, so, exactly. so you're tying your hands in terms of ideology as well as Brexit. OK, thanks very much, Patrick. Back to work. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the content minds. <laughs> Hi. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now I'm joined by Sarah Manavis, our digital culture writer, and she's here to tell me about a new project that all of our listeners, I'm sure, will be super excited about. Essentially, I'm sure you all are loyal subscribers to Morning Call. And you have Stephen in your inbox, you know, telling you the kind of rundown of everything that's happened in politics. But we don't have anything that does that for pretty much everything else on our website. Um, The New Statesman, even though it is mostly politics, it is a lot of things that are culture. So whether that's really traditional things like books, film, television, you know, that kind of stuff. But it's also, you know, things I write about like digital culture, like memes and trends, a lot of things about pop culture. Anoush writes really great things about reality television, (laughs) uh, such as the infamous Paul Hollywood handshake piece (laughs) and many pieces about the apprentice so yeah so we are launching a brand new newsletter it's called the dress down and it'll drop once a week so we're not inundating your inbox on a friday morning giving you essentially like a breakdown of everything that's happened in the week that doesn't have anything to do with politics and giving you sort of the best of the best that the new statesman has to offer and beyond and so what's behind the name i actually already (laughs) know this because our listeners won't be aware, but Sarah made us do a really fun um, brainstorming session <laughs> a la days. The Apprentice. Yes. And it was it was really fun, although I don't think I gave any constructive ideas. <laughs> I think that you were really good. You like you have great. And also, I think the beauty of an advertising brainstorm is that there are no bra- bad ideas in brainstorming. Oh, yeah. So, you did say. Yes, indeed. That's always what you need. To, yeah, if we only did. the web desk would agree that there are no, no such thing as bad ideas. <laughs> um, it's called The Dress Down because it's the idea that it's a Friday. It's coming to you on a Friday morning. Dress Down Friday. Yes, Dress Down Friday. And we're giving you, not you a dressing down, but we're giving <laughs> the weekend culture a dressing down. And yeah, so that's sort of the idea behind it. And it comes from, it'll be penned by me, but it'll give you stuff from like all of your favorite writers at the New Statesman, like Anoush, like Anna Leskovich, Megan Nolan, Amelia Tate, you know, our writers Kate and Ellen, who are on the culture team, but also people like our sub-editor Indra, who writes really great things about sort of climate change and also pop culture as well. So yeah, it'll be a nice array of stuff. And then plus we'll pull from other places and kind of give you just pieces that have really taken our interest that week and we think that you guys would really like. Okay. And it's always been a bit of a balance on the New Statesman website, at least. Like the magazine, if anyone subscribes to the print copy, is half and half politics and culture. But on the website, it's quite difficult sometimes to make culture pieces cut through all of the all of the Westminster ping pong so how, how do you do it on a day-to-day basis <laughs> well Anoush I could ask you the same question <laughs> yeah no it is really interesting and I think that we're increasingly seeing how cultural things have an impact on our lives just as much as politics do not to toot my own horn um, and not to get super serious um, but I wrote a piece about eco-fascism back in September which is essentially just like redressed up ethno-nationalism where you're also like a massive vegan and hate single-use plastic and it turned out that like the guy behind the Christchurch shooting in March identified as an eco-fascist and whether that was like ironically or not is sort of up for debate but essentially like these kinds of things that we write about do have impacts beyond just you know, being a piece, talking about something weird that someone said on Reddit. So I think it's really important that we give that just as much attention and time as we do the 
absolute madness happening in Westminster and in a lot of ways has even more of a long-standing cultural impact and even wider cultural impact than a lot of the politics stuff does not to downgrade our <laughs> wonderful political coverage people will just stop listening to this podcast <laughs> yeah exactly now. they're like well I'll tune in um tune into this newsletter instead yeah no but essentially like it just is the idea behind it is to give you an idea like a little bit of a taste of what we have to offer that isn't just politics and we do and a lot of the stuff the new statement covers not even just on staff but culturally really does have a lot of salience in our day-to-day lives and you know also give you some fun stuff like sometimes it's okay to just enjoy a bit of reality tv um if this was launching any sooner there would definitely be some love island content but unfortunately i don't think we'll be able to get that to you guys uh this not this year uh, maybe for one of the two next year. But yeah, we'll be able to give you a nice range of stuff that has cultural impacts, political impacts. Yeah, and so it's not just straight politics, but it still is political for those of you who want even a bit more of that. Yeah, and I should say to listeners, actually, when I went to collect Sarah to do this section of the podcast, <laughs> she was looking very grave at her screen with her earphones and watching a Love Island The first look. look. <laughs> Which is, you know, just an example of how seriously... Yes, <laughs> and the commitments that I will show you. So please subscribe. <laughs> you can go to the newstatesman.com forward slash the dress down. And yeah, it'll be there for you to type your email in and give us your email in a very ethical and GDPR friendly way. So you can already subscribe then? Yeah, it exists. The ability when, to subscribe when does it exists. arrive? It is arriving for the first time this Friday, which is July 26th. And so yeah, it'll drop in your inbox around 10 a.m. And it's a really great excuse to not start work or your university <laughs> studies. Or not read Morning Call. Yes, or not read Morning Call. <laughs> You'll get them at the same time. Yeah, oh my God, actually. Okay, maybe it'll drop at 11. <laughs> um, I don't need that competition. <laughs> okay, thanks so much, Sarah. Thanks. Now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. Yes, and this week we've had a really interesting question from a reader called Alex Keeble. Thanks, Alex. He's asking, could Boris Johnson hold a second referendum? <sighs> depends on depends on what. Maybe he'll call... Uh, sorry, I'm, I was going to make a really lame joke there. <laughs> about like, maybe he'll you know hold another referendum on you know further powers for the Welsh Assembly. But that would... <laughs> <laughs> in any case, that'll be a third referendum, so I'm gonna I'm gonna show up. It's a really interesting question, and this was a sort of scenario that Philip Hammond on the quiet was sort of talking up in the months before March via his parliamentary private secretary Hugh Merriman, who is one of the few Tory MPs to come out and say a second referendum is way out of the on pass. The logic goes a little bit like this. There's no majority for anything, still less a Brexit deal, still less a chance of the EU budging eventually this question is going to go back to have to go back to the country going back to the country as a party that hasn't done brexit for the conservatives would obviously as far as tory mpc and as far as the evidence of the european elections would indicate would be lethal so the only option that's left and the option that allows the tory party to because it worked so well last time do a sort of wilson style collective responsibility being suspended thing would be a second referendum. I am not convinced that Boris Johnson is in that space or has ever been in that space or will arrive in that space, but who knows, stranger things have happened. But there is a sort of consistent logic to it. And, you know, while it's not entirely true, obviously the experience of the 2016 referendum underlines the fact that you can't completely extricate these questions 
from party politics and the fallout will by its very nature be party political and have unforeseen consequences in that regard it's not an idea in time that you can just sort of laugh out of the room if you're a Tory MP but if there's one thing we know about the Parliamentary Conservative Party the really interesting thing about this leadership election is everybody who put their name forward with the exception of Kit Malthouse and James Cleverley who pulled out early got their name on the ballot you know they reached that threshold of 10 MPs to make the first round and you know they all had lots of Brexit policies and only one MP who put their name forward didn't make the ballot and was too toxic in terms of their platform to be lent votes to and that person was Sam Jima who only had three name backers and was for a second referendum and I think it's at that point maybe the politics will have changed by October if Tory MPs have taken free or whatever but at that point, that was conclusive proof that the Tory party were never going to reconcile themselves. They were unreconcilable and unreconciled to a second referendum, in my opinion. OK. And so someone like Boris Johnson, who is a risk taker and, you know, who feels that his sort of sheer force of will can can sort of make things look more appealing to Tory MPs than when Theresa May was, was mooting them. Someone like him, could he even not overcome that sort of revulsion towards the second referendum that you've just described it's an interesting question even the act of having a second referendum okay say johnson does convince tory mps say he did convince tory mps that you know second referendum was the way out of the mess say this all happens in september to hold one is going to require a another extension anyway if you know it's a say there's been no deal Parliament has blocked block no deal. Even saying this out loud, it's really hard to work out how he would arrive at that point, both sort of procedurally, right? Like, so Parliament mm. blocked no deal. Say they'd done that, the nuclear option, well, Johnson wouldn't be Prime Minister anymore. Also, why would he go to the country on a referendum platform to campaign for no deal when he could just sort of sit on his hands if he wanted? And also, holding a second referendum would mean another... If you want to get a mandate for no deal, then or want no deal to happen, just sort of sit on your hands and try and dare Parliament to vote you out of office. If that happens, you'll vote out of office. If not, no deal has already happened. Like yeah. There's no need to have a... There's no need to have a referendum. Have a referendum. That. And yeah. with it, another Article 50 extension. And then there is the risk, of course, that Remain wins. And then where's the Conservative Party then? Mm. It's instead of going over the cliff with no deal and making Brexit happen, deal or die on October the 31st, has one extended Article 50 again... And two, they're in the EU. So I, I think, you know, the annihilation that some Tories fear would perhaps be even graver in that. You know, they would, you know, they would probably say, well, look, we face annihilation if we get this wrong anyway. But if we get it even wronger via calling a second referendum and losing it, then we're even more screwed. Yeah, and they'll probably see that as a bigger risk from their point of view than an election because lots of those Tory MPs who were sort of holding their noses and supporting Boris Johnson were convincing themselves that it was because he is more likely to be a winner in a general election scenario against Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's, 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 uh, Tory MPs are sort of have, with varying shades of sincerity and reluctance, reconciled themselves to the fact that Brexit really does need to happen by the 31st of October. Do or die... Otherwise, they face electoral annihilation. Obviously, there's the other, the other sub, the, the sort of subplot, which is well, actually, doing that sort of toxifies your brand. And here's this nice woman called Joe Swinson, and she's gonna, you know, screw you in your, you know, leafy Surrey marginal. I said that thinking of with Jeremy Hunt falsely claiming you won a marginal seat for Liberal Democrats in 2001, but that's another podcast. <laughs> um, so, like, 
this whole the the question itself, as much as the answer I think is no, also does shed light on the fact that there are no really no good options for the Conservative Party as the catch-all party of the centre-right that it has been its most successful as, Mm. I think. Okay, great. Thank you. Alex, I hope that's answered your question. I should also apologise to any listeners who noticed that we did actually answer a question last week that we'd already been asked and answered before. But hopefully the answer was sufficiently different for you to realise that we actually have no idea what we're talking about. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, Patrick Maguire and Sarah Manavis. We're recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.